We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Architects spend a long time developing their craft. By the time they have the experience to get registered, an architect will have designed and documented a whole variety of projects for their clients. So when an architect has the opportunity to design for themselves, there's a lot of options they've been exposed to that they can consider. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be talking to architects about what it's like working on projects for themselves. Our guests in this episode are Jesse Fowler and Tara Ward from Fowler & Ward, based in Melbourne. Fowler & Ward is an exceptional emerging practice who cut their teeth working together at Claire Cousins Architects. Before they started their own practice, they had a hunger to learn what it really takes to make an architectural project happen. In this episode, we hear from Jesse and Tara about their experience working with trades, appreciating what can fit in a small space, and how the experience on their own projects has benefited their clients when weighing up the value of different design options. Let's jump in. All right. Hello, Jesse and Tara from Farrell and Ward. Thank you so much for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Nice and uh, refreshed after the summer break. Good, good. So you had a little bit of time off, which is good, and ready to ready to talk about working on your own houses. Yes, always. <laughs> <laughs> All the disasters. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure if they were from what I've heard about these projects. So, first, tell me a little bit about the types of projects that you took on first, and why you wanted to take on these projects. Well, I think the projects that Tara and I have had the most experience really um, sort of being involved in both as designers for ourselves and actually often doing a bit of the sort of DIY or quite a lot of the DIY work have all been the kind of projects that we really don't see as sort of portfolio projects. They're certainly not like the dream architect's own home kind of project where you... They're not like a manifesto for the business in any way, but we both took on projects pretty early on in our careers and or student life for Jesse, And like we just took them on because it was the only way to get into the, the property, property market. market. Yeah. <laughs> right. So is it because you wanted to, I guess, really experience the nuts and bolts of making a project happen? No. We would have okay. happily paid a builder if any of us had enough money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were just doing what every client does and trying to stretch our money as far as we could get it. And, you know, when, you, when you're young, you're ambitious and think you can do everything. So I guess we were up for the challenge. We were up for the challenge. And I mean, the reality is we've both gone back for more. So I think after, after the first round, although it was probably driven entirely out of necessity, I think we realized the benefit of having some site experience and sort of going through the decision-making process and all the other things you learn when you work on a project for yourself. So, you know, We've both done sort of more than one, but yeah, certainly it wasn't driven out of anything architecture related, really. I think we just, because we're architects or we're studying architecture, we had a few additional skills than most people would that kind of gave us the confidence to think perhaps we could do it. And we were probably just, you know, 
I'm a bit overconfident, but <laughs> right, <managed. okay. laughs> yeah. So I mean, so were these very large projects, or were they quite small? Well, maybe like the first project that I worked on, which is probably the first out of sort of either of us, was converting a small one, like a, a small studio apartment in East Melbourne into a one bedroom. So mm-hmm. I was actually still at uni at the time, but my partner Damien was already working. And I think, you know, just like everyone at a certain point in their life, you start feeling the pressure to buy something, but everything was so phenomenally expensive. And I was getting constant you know, realestate.com alerts and things like that. And I actually remember sitting in the studio in the old architecture building upstairs at Melbourne Uni and sort of getting an alert for this awesome Art Deco apartment in East Melbourne. And I actually just jumped on the tram and went and checked it out because it was happening right then. And everyone else at the open for inspection was just walking in and just turning on their heels and leaving because the space was so (sighs) tiny. And I think that made me realise, oh, perhaps we might actually be able to buy this one. (laughs) It's freaking everyone else out. So we were really lucky. We were able to purchase it. You know, I think I'm happy to say that we bought it for $250,000, which sort of sounds like what our parents paid for things, but I'm not actually that old. So that's how that's how tiny it was. So when right. we bought it, we kind of realized, oh, yeah, so Tara was just reminding me, it's, it was 36 square meters. <laughs> so that was actually smaller than the size that most banks would lend on at the time. But we realized when we purchased it that it had the opportunity to be converted into a one bedroom just due to its layout and stuff like that. So we realized that if we did buy it, we wouldn't just be stuck living in a studio apartment for the rest of our lives, but we'd have the capacity to, uh, you know, build a bit of capital, build a bit of, yeah, build a bit of capital in it. So when we finally started working on it, I mean, I was still at uni and I was working as a student at Bates Smart, so I had absolutely no concept of how to run a residential renovation and mm-hmm. so everything was a learning experience for me and luckily asking a few colleagues I was able to get recommendations for a builder who was able to do work of that scale and so we did engage a builder to do I suppose the beginnings of the work so we had to demolish a masonry wall and obviously install a beam when that came out and he also built a couple of small areas of lightweight framing within within the the studio to sort of reconfigure it mm-hmm. and then he was able to leave us with a, a shell essentially a fairly clean shell that Damien and I then took on and did uh, the, the rest of the work or I guess the fit out so it was really an interior project sort of an interior renovation right and okay I that's and then sort of what you know yours really was as well yeah. yeah and then Tara what was what was the first project you got to work on yourself so I my partner actually purchased a one-bedroom apartment, about 45 square metres, in a block in Richmond before we even met. So I kind of inherited a, inherited a project, but he is a, Reese is a project manager, so he has a little bit of experience, he has a lot of experience working in the residential construction sector, but we took it on together as a project to renovate. He didn't kind of formally take it on and with his, you know, where he works. So it's a pretty small one-bedder, you know, 1964 brown brick walk-up apartment in a little block of eight in Richmond. Had really good bones, lots of light and ventilation, shallow floor plate, a great block that has lots of access to gardens and the parking is unusually around the back. Normally in those kinds of blocks, it surrounds the building itself. So we had nice garden outlook, but it was just really tired and, you know, nowhere near enough storage for two people to live in as we planned Uh, as we planned to move in. So again, it was an internal kind of 
or fresh, but with a lot more focus on joinery elements to, to make it comfortable for two people. Right. Okay. So when, when you both started on these projects, what, what was the sort of actual site experience that, that you got from, from going through these constructions? Like what, what did you feel comfortable taking on board yourselves as designers now renovators? Well, for me, Damien and I had zero construction experience. I'd done a couple of uni studio uh, uni studios with David O'Brien where we, you know, the Bauer studio at Melbourne Uni, some people might know that, where you were sort of on the tools. And so I knew how to use some tools and I feel like <laughs> I'm a fairly practical person. But other than that, neither of us had any experience. And Damien, he won't mind me saying that, you know, he's pretty hopeless in terms of renovations, although he's an exceptional painter now. So in the context of that, I guess that's why we engaged someone like Pete to do the initial work and also because we needed a building permit for that. But once we took it on ourselves, we did, I mean, really quite a lot. We did quite a bit of levelling work to the slab and we laid the floors. Um, We installed all the cabinetry, which was a combination of sort of partial IKEA kitchen and then some custom joinery. And I have no idea why we did this, but we actually built the custom joinery ourselves, which I don't know, that's insane. It just was a lot of time at Bunnings convincing the guys on the sawing machine to cut a lot of things to exactly the (laughs) right size (laughs) and then putting them together yourself. We also did tiling, all the painting, of course. We did some landscaping. We did employ a plumber and an electrician, (laughs) definitely. Uh, But, yeah, we we did a lot more, really, than I think we were probably capable of and we were really tired and exhausted. But we learned a lot from it, I think. I mean, Tara can speak to what what she sort of got out of working on these projects. But for me, trying to do a lot of things yourself really helps you understand what a builder's talking about um, when they're kind of working through challenges on site. I think one of the biggest ones was, you know, a lot of builders we work with, especially on pretty cost-sensitive renovations, always want to reframe walls and floors so they have nice plumb surfaces, particularly where there's joinery or tiling and things like that going in. And, you know, sometimes you're sort of rolling your eyes because you want to save a bit of money. But with my first experience of tiling, I was doing it in this 1920s bathroom and everything was out of whack. And it ended with the room about a third tiled and me sort of on the floor in tears, covered in (laughs) tile glue. And Damien said, we're going to get that cheap tileless number tomorrow. (laughs) Like you have to stop. So... I think that was really important. And also just things like if you're installing joinery and all of a sudden you're having to notch out bits of the skirting board or because they don't fit or you screw all your handles in and they hit the wall every time you open it. It's all these little things that you don't think about until you're doing them. But then it normally normally a builder would be kind of figuring all that sort of stuff out for you. But you can Mm. take it on board and it informs, I think, your documentation and particularly your detailing a lot when you've experienced the repercussion of a sort of poorly thought out idea yeah yeah (laughs) those kind of your your drawings how they actually translate to what happens on site it's it's great learning for your documentation that's for sure yeah and i mean like you said you know when you sort of are doing it yourself you get a new appreciation for the amazing skills of the tradespeople who do it every day did that also improve the way that you talk to builders on sites that when they're saying saying these problems ahead of time that it was just like yep no thank you yeah, that's great <laughs> and i think i probably had a bit more experience dealing with trades with race yeah well you were, you were doing it a little bit later and tara had been working at claire cousins since she was a student so yeah. she had much more i guess relevant experience in terms of the scale of a project yeah but certainly when you're a young architect or when you're working for somebody else people 
and trades, they they listen to you a lot more. And so even as us starting a business, not, you know, without a big name out there, you go to site, people don't know who you are. And I think particularly as a young woman as well on site, you're often second guessed by trades. I mean, Absolutely. that's an awful thing to say and it doesn't apply to everyone, but I think it definitely happens. I just, I feel like every plumber I've ever worked with has tried to suggest a redesign of the bathroom and <laughs> at the beginning of your career, you don't know whether you've designed something horrible or non-workable, but obviously the more you do, the more you build your confidence. But I think getting that experience on your own project when you can sort of figure it out is really helpful. The other thing I would say is that on that first East Melbourne project, I totally engaged Pete was so supportive of our little project. He just thought it was a sort of genius idea to convert this apartment the way we were proposing. And I think that really gave me a lot of confidence. He he knew and acknowledged I had no idea what I was doing on the construction side of things, but he was really behind me and supportive in terms of the, the bigger project. And so yeah. that was a really lovely way to start. I feel like maybe if you were dealing with I don't know, different trades or had different experiences on your first project, you might not have you might not go back um, more. But Great. I mean, I certainly had some good experiences working a bit more closely with trades than what you would do if you were doing contract admin. Yeah. I mean, just it's all the small little details like at Richmond, like every kind of 1960s block of flats that's masonry with a concrete slab or like most. The toilet had a side-mounted sewer. It was like a side trap. And there's only one toilet at Bunnings that is available to suit that kind of configuration and it's basically the same layout as the 1960s style toilet it's you know it was making me second guess whether the bathroom should be touched at all if we had to replace its toilet with the same ugly toilet but working with the plumber we were able to figure out a nice detail where we could use a concealed system toilet and we had you know finished it with a nice low height sort of wall in the room which gave us extra storage space and it was you know a really successful outcome and then we've used it again and again yeah on other you know <laughs> 1980s apartments that we've yeah, like the same detail like our Burke Street apartment which is a complete different type of project and different level of finish but we knew how to solve the problem and I think sometimes you develop those relationships if you can develop those relationships with particular people they can help you if you encounter problems on projects mm. moving forward. Yeah, I definitely worked with a, a plumber. Actually, I was bagging plumbers before, but a great plumber early on. <laughs> a sort of older guy who had so much experience and he's become someone I've rung up and asked sort of tricky questions of, particularly sort of services-related questions when you need advice really early in a, a project. And also I was thinking about Tara, the engineer I used I mean, you know, we all get experience talking to engineers. As architects, you don't have to have site experience for that. But the engineer I used on the East Melbourne apartment was Morris Perugia, who we work, <laughs> we work all with the time. all the time still <laughs> today. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's great to develop those contacts. But Absolutely. And I it sounds like because you sort of do these things and you're seeing them go in when they do, does that also help you, I guess, plan out and understand the sequencing of what's happening on site? Absolutely. It's like if you get the sequencing wrong, your project's going to take, if you're doing it down while your project's going to take twice as long or three times as long to, to finish. And it's nothing worse than you sort of slogging your guts out, I don't know, perfectly painting a room and the next week the electricians come in and knocked a whole lot of holes in your beautifully finished <laughs> walls because you got something wrong. Absolutely. I think, you know, 
it's something that you experience even doing contract admin, but I remember one of the first projects I did contract administration on, working for somebody else, working for another architect, I was walking through the site while the electrical rough-in was happening and discussing the light switching with the clients and they kind of were considering moving a light switch and I didn't really have the foresight to let the builder know about it until about a week later. And by that time, the room had been fully plastered and a change that was going to cost nothing was suddenly like potentially a thousand dollar exercise and certainly, you know, had a healthy debate with the clients about who was going to pay for that extra cost. But knowing when you can make changes is so important to, you know, documenting efficiently and also getting things right. We, um, we often defer some decisions until we're under construction because we know that they won't impact anything else. Things like colors, which are so important to see in an actual space and light Mm. fittings, you know, once you understand the scale of the space a bit more, all those sorts of decisions become a lot easier. But we've got our head around the cost implications. Like with color, if we know it's not going to be white, we write, it's got, we, we specify that it will be a color <laughs> because painters like to charge more for colored walls because they often have to do more coats. So mm. we sort of, we hedge, we hedge a lot of things <laughs> that we know won't interrupt the sequence or have big cost implications. But I think we learned lots of those from, I guess, our own experience, but also the kind of smaller scale. I, I think a lot of that you also learn from the projects you first do contract admin on. Yeah, certainly. right. But, I mean, it's good that you mentioned scale because I think that by going through the process with these two relatively small apartments that you got to test things at a really understandable and, and approachable scale. Do you think that it's a really good idea for, for people to take on small projects and do you think that these were the right size for you guys at that time when you took them on? Without a doubt. No. <laughs> no. Also, possibly a bit too small too in small. some cases but... I think we're sort of learning now that when you're running your own business, there's probably a bit less money to be made in really small projects because often if the client has a tiny project, they're not going to have a huge budget, but actually so much thought goes into small projects, probably more thought than in a larger project. So it doesn't really necessarily add up, but we really love them. And I think we're both probably quite grateful that we got to do quite interesting thinking at a small scale for ourselves because you might not get to do that later. I mean, having said that, I worked on an awesome tiny project at Claire's, the Flinders Lane, uh, Flinders Lane apartment. So you get to do them in other work, but certainly working at that tiny scale for us was really great. And I suppose it feels a bit more achievable when you're doing things for yourself. So, yeah. mm. I mean, once you, once you strip out a shell and you're kind of, you're, you're responsible for getting the work done, it's kind of terrifying. So I think the scale of the project certainly makes it a bit more, a, a bit more achievable. And is that, I, is, sorry. yeah. And, oh, sorry. Is that, um, is that a really big moment when you strip out the shell and you look at the, the space and you're sort of just looking at the space where you can then start to think, okay, now I've designed this, this proposal and we're going to start to put things into that space. Is that where you we're able to experience, you know, like, oh, we've put in a lot of things that maybe now we don't need to put in and there's other other things we can do to make these spaces shine? I almost think it's the opposite for me. I think the one thing about seeing the clear space is that you realise you can't turn back. Yes. <laughs> but I think there's something quite misleading about empty spaces. I think they often feel capable of holding a lot less than you can actually get in them. So, when there's furniture or walls or context, I think spaces feel a lot more relatable. So 
I think we experience this with clients now. Often you go to site and especially when just a slab or framing, you know, a floor is framed with walls around it, people are always very stressed out about the scale of sizes, uh, the scale mm. of spaces. And so I, I think, no, I feel like the changes I've made in projects have happened when quite a bit more is already established. So, you know, at our East Melbourne apartments, the most boring example ever, but I decided to sort of extend the, the, the length of the kitchen by one cupboard because once I looked at the space, it was one of those sort of things I was leaving a bit of room for a dining table and on plan you feel like you need more fat around it. But when I saw it in reality, I thought, no, a bit more bench space would be good. But you would have no way to quantify that just looking at the empty space. So, mm. you know, certain projects are different. But Right. And are there other things that are sort of less or less physical that, that you try to bring into these spaces to try to make the, the small spaces feel better than they might be in terms of just their, their sheer size? Yeah, I mean, certainly... Every, everything you put back in is a lot is a lot more critical and needs to be carefully considered. And I, I think the thing that is really similar about the two projects we first worked on, the East Melbourne apartment for me and the Richmond flat for Tara, is that both of the spaces already had really good bones in terms of access to light. So, look, I'm sure there's incredible tiny spaces out there that don't have great access to light, but I think the reason both of us felt confident in investing in them investing in them was because they had good bones so the east melbourne apartment for me it was actually the last apartment in the block so it had access to light on three sides of the floor plan you know which is unusual in any apartment never mind one that's only 36 square meters so actually with windows on three sides of 36 square meters there was a lot of light in there and because of the access to so many windows i was able to the apartment actually already had a fully enclosed kitchen in it, which is quite strange and you wouldn't find in a studio apartment these days. But this sort of bedsit typology, I think, from that era more commonly did have an enclosed kitchen. So we were sort of able to turn that into a bedroom and just reconfigure the circulation entirely so that essentially the bedroom, the bathroom and the living dining kitchen space all kind of pinwheeled off this one central circulation point I mean, really, it was like literally a square metre probably that sat between all these three spaces. But with some sort of clever sliding door action, that piece of space was able to sort of belong either to the bedroom or to the bathroom or to the living space, depending on how the doors were opened and closed. So I think but we only had the flexibility of that because we had windows on so many sides and so we could place program or, for instance, with the bathroom for cost savings, retain program in the spot it was already in. And so it made many more options available to us. And I think that was, you know, the benefit of that apartment. You couldn't have done it with other apartments in the building. I don't mm. think they would have had the same opportunities. Yeah. And I think at Richmond, because the kind of general layout was already fairly successful, it was just a matter of how do we incorporate more storage and more joinery so that we could almost have less furniture and have to bring mm. less stuff into the space because the more furniture and the more crap that you have in small spaces, the more cluttered and small they feel. So we kind of re you know, we incorporated a study into the robe, a broom cupboard, we kind of built in this laundry element as an extension of the bedroom robes, kind of projecting into the bathroom. We incorporated a bunch of kind of shelving for a display of all of our stuff. And, you know, we even 
built the bed so we wouldn't need bedside tables and it also had loads of storage underneath it. And we were able to do that all in a very consistent materials palette, which again, it makes the space feel a bit bigger because you've got a kind of consistent visual consistency. So all we needed to bring into the space was, you know, the sofa, coffee table and our dining table and the mattress. I think the other interesting thing about Tara's renovation there was East Melbourne, for instance, had beautiful bones. It was Art Deco, so it was really mm. a focus on the, the spatial approach. But I think Tara and Reese definitely did work on that with the joinery, but it was more about walking into that typology of apartment and associating it with, like, low ceilings, really dark spaces. You have one of those sort of popcorn ceilings, which, feeling. you know, you just walk in and go, oh, people just can't see past it but you guys your approach to how you dealt with the interiors completely transformed how the space felt so i mean apart from the joinery the other big move was that we put in a a, you know a lining board ceiling which really transformed the space and made it feel brighter because the vermiculite ceiling was just kind of a dusked dusk and like a light capture yeah sucks in (laughs) the light so Doing that made everything else feel that bit more special. And, you know, it didn't matter that it was the shadow line was kind of a bit wonky in places where we got tired when we were installing it. (laughs) You know, the big move kind of made everything else feel right. So Great. And, I mean, when you're talking about, yeah, knowing what to bring into these spaces, especially the small spaces, and then before you mentioned that, you know, these projects weren't meant to be folio projects, How did you turn that part of your design skills and design thinking off so that you could sort of let go of of trying to make this, you know, a a project that might make it into houses or Architecture Australia? Um, How did you sort of, yeah, get past that part of your training? Well, I mean, even though we say that they were never meant to be folio projects, we want every space that we design or, you know, every space that we work on that you invest in to feel beautiful. So we were still trying, trying our best to make them, to make them feel special. But when it's your own money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was the biggest driver, but that's kind of freeing too, because it can be very debilitating designing for yourself and making decisions for yourself when you don't have the client as a kind of a, another opinion or, you know, making decisions on some things when you could be happy with things being either way. So uh, I think the kind of budget constraints help help to dictate what's, what's possible. Yeah, I think that was the biggest driver. But I suppose us talking about access to light and the existing sort of bones of buildings and the spaces that they provide as the canvas to work from, I think we think about those as the primary drivers of any project. So you know, you have to pick a finish for your robes or your kitchen or your tiles, but in a way that can sort of be whatever. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So maybe, you know, the the approach we take was the same as the approach we now use in all of our regular work. So, you know, what's what move is going to have the biggest impact and the best bang for your buck? I think in architectural projects that's often dealing with the the envelope and the shell, you know, where are we getting light? What's the orientation? Where are we getting volume and space and fresh air? So those take precedent and the interiors can kind of take a backseat because you're getting all of the drama out of, you know, the walls and floor and ceiling that you need to build anyway. And because of because these two projects were essentially interior projects, we already, we picked the project based on 
the kind of basics that we try and design into a project. <laughs> and then we just amplified them through, you know, a bit of spatial reconfiguration in mine and Tara kind of trying to amplify the access to light and things like that through the interior decisions. So, yeah, I think yeah. the stuff we try and achieve and the stuff that you think makes a project successful was baked into them anyway. We mm. just uh, downgraded all the bits around the edges. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like, you know, you like you said, you know, you've started to actually use what you've learnt on your own projects in now every one of your projects. What, do you think that these projects did sort of solidify your design ethos and voice that you now have at Fowler and Ward? So it's sort of that they were the they were the start of what has now become your your ongoing process. Yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, really, I sort of wish I had done the East Melbourne apartment a bit later so it looked great enough to put on our website <laughs> because spatially and sort of really fundamentally it's really cool. But I mean there's a mirror splashback in there, right? It's like that's shameful stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> It's not the right space for it. So, but I think it has informed our our work heaps. We've got a couple of projects, I think in particular, that have benefited. It informs all of our projects, but I think a couple of projects in particular have benefited from it a lot. I think Um, as a practice, we're definitely interested in small spaces as well. And certainly the learnings coming from understanding how small is too small is applicable to every project. And it doesn't matter whether it's a ginormous house or an actual small space project, but knowing how small is too small is really valuable because everything that you're building costs money and everybody's trying to get the most value for their money. So the less you can build. Yeah, the better. And, you know, it's it's like the environment. It's more, you know, small houses take less energy to heat and cool, less materials. We need more of them in the city. Um, They're easier to clean, which is my favourite. But, you know, even on projects like, the Thornbury townhouses. It's 100. They're 150 square meter townhouses on a block that it's about. It's about 466 square meters overall. So they're not. They're not tiny. They're not tiny. At all. But in the scheme of a large three bedroom family home, they're relatively compact compared to what's built in the outer suburbs. I but, feel like we've actually had a couple of clients come to us who have use that project as a reference that they quite like, but they've sort of come and said, "Oh, we want a 300 square meter." house because we're doing a new build and that's their sort of understanding of what a new build three bedroom house should be and they said like Thornbury townhouses and we're like well they're 150 square meters so so I think with that space we were able to make you know the bathrooms the laundry as compact but efficient and practical as we could get them which meant that the living spaces kitchen living dining feels really generous and is actually a really comfortable space to be so knowing where we can knit and tuck it's really valuable. But then mm. we have another project, which is like the complete other end of the scale, which is a tiny house that we designed for a awesome company called Base Cabin. And I mean, the size of that is constrained by literally what you're allowed to tow on a trailer um, on, you know, public roads in Australia. So it's about 2.4 by 6. And I think, I can't quite remember how high it is, but high enough to get a small sleeping mezzanine, but that's about it, um, you know, above other habitable space. And so that was a lot smaller than East Melbourne, which I thought was probably going to be the smallest project I'd have to deal with. But it's so much fun. And I actually, my partner and I spent a few months living in an RV over in um, the United States when we were living over there. And we also have spent quite a bit of time on houseboats over the years. So you are able to start thinking about um, how small is too small from an even way smaller uh, perspective. And 
you start thinking about all those cool things like, you know, how can something fall down or how can I use the thickness of a not even very thick wall to <laughs> store something? And uh, how, think, how much space do I actually need to sit on the toilet and then move into the shower? <laughs> and I think Tara and I, well, particularly me, like all, I have this tiny little tape measure that I always have in my handbag and the two of us are just always ready to measure something. And I think it's amazing when you're in a tiny space or, you know, this is quite embarrassing, but often when I'm in like toilet cubicles at a shopping center and they feel smaller <laughs> than normal, you know, I measure the doorway, I measure the space and I say, oh, actually this works fine. And then that sort of goes into the brain's trust. And so later, you know, I don't know, you know, it's always just certain situations. And I should say every house every project has a different ends up with a different definition of yeah. you know how small is actually too small maybe it's every different client personality but just kind of having a greater awareness of of what uh you know a 900 millimeter wide corridor feels like versus something that's much bigger is so valuable when you're designing and when you're you know in the concept phase yeah we don't impose 600 millimeter wide doors on many people no <laughs> 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 so after going through all of this, and I think, you know, it's really important that uh, you mentioned that going through these processes, you're able to assess a lot of these things and then also, mm. I guess, test them on yourself to make sure that they're actually working beyond just what's on the plan or just on our clients that we give these uh, designs to. In terms of like the cost savings of these projects, what, what have you found is has been the place where you've ended up testing it in your own projects and then you are able to then talk to other clients and then say, right, well, putting something in like the the timber ceiling really gives you this amazing outcome and money should go there. But then you have mentioned that you want to use marble or something <laughs> somewhere where you're not going to get that return on investment. Has there been that sort of payout from going through this yourselves? Yeah. I mean, I think they're the conversations we have with every single client, to be and honest. And they sort of happen, like, you know, throughout the process and they're reiterative and you build on them. I think, you know, at York Street, working with the existing shell as a big driver was, you know, something that we, like the slab, for instance, yeah. grinding and sealing the slab. Mm. We've done that in lots of other projects. Using colour is one we employ a lot because paint is the cheapest thing you can use. So sort of using paint as a, a cost saving and I suppose trying to explain to clients that if you can have a, a moment of drama where it where it matters or impact where it matters, the rest of the space can be a little more secondary because you're still, you know, achieving achieving the wow factor somehow. And like we said, a lot of the time that is through volume and access to light. But if you don't have that, I mean I think colours one we use a lot. In the East Melbourne flat, we did a combination of an Ikea kitchen and some custom joinery, which I think I mentioned before. And, you know, the custom joinery was there entirely out of necessity. So because we had so little space, none of the standard Ikea depth cupboards would fit. They would take up too much room. And we sort of built, we had this one wall adjacent to the kitchen where we had closed up a doorway that led previously into the bathroom. And because it's an old building, all the walls were super, super deep. And so we sort of had shallow cabinets next to a much deeper cabinet that was accommodate well incorporating the space where the doorway used to be and for such a tiny apartment having that additional storage at all was such a benefit so we already knew we had to spend some money there so we said well that doesn't have to be white and laminate from ikea where we're doing something different and that's where we can um i guess like reap the 
the biggest reward from from the investment we have to put into it. And I feel like that example we use a lot with clients. So I think sometimes clients feel like they're getting a bit of a secondary or downgraded option when we say, hey, white laminate's awesome, but we've used it in our houses. We love it. And if and you've seen the photos of the products yeah, that we've done yeah. with the great kitchens that are laminate. And if 80% of the kitchen's white laminate, but 20% of it is something totally different or it's sitting under a soaring ceiling or it's next to an incredible view of your garden, like you just don't even notice the... Yeah the white bit yeah i mean i guess like you said you know working on your own projects you know tara you did the really lovely bespoke joinery in in your apartment but then at the same time you're just as comfortable choosing i care when you need to so i guess that's another hat that you've developed where you know when to use what where (laughs) i mean i would say that we discourage clients from using ikea now because it's a lot of work for us (laughs) (laughs) but you know if they're if they're good cheap friends then uh don't include yeah. that bit. And I should say for the joinery or street, the only thing that a joiner made was the kitchen and the rest of us, the rest of it was um, Reese and I and Reese's dad building it. So we rehacked the robe and um, put on new doors and converted part of it to a study and, and Reese's dad and Reese built the bed. I can't, uh, I designed it, but they built it themselves and I, you know, did some very, I did some labouring. But when you've got some things that feel sharp, everything else doesn't need to be at quite the same standard. Yeah. I think we were talking about that the other day was when you're designing something on paper, I think, you know, you think about everything being really finely detailed and beautifully thought out. But when you're doing DIY projects in particular, I mean, there was no way Damien and I were going to be able to achieve any sharp well-considered details (laughs) with our complete lack of construction techniques. So once again, it was that same approach to like, what are the moments in the design that are going to make this space special that don't rely on it being expensive or extremely complex or extremely refined? Each project sort of requires a different, yes, a bit of, yeah. a, bit of a different thing. But And uh, we would expect a much higher standard of workmanship from uh, the builders that we work with on site than uh, what we would accept for, from our own hands. But, but if, you know, theoretically that idea that, if you if you're kind of investing your energy into the right moments, everything else can kind of take a backseat or doesn't need to be as expensive, and you'll still get that impact. I think we carry through in lots of projects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you know working on renovations, it's it's got its tricky side. I mean, like you were saying before, you know, if you've got skirting boards and while you're tiling, you know, the tiles have to be cut or the skirting boards have to be adjusted. It sounds like you guys are kind of suckers for punishment. Um, do you like uh, taking I on? Know, what we say that we don't mind. We don't mind details, but at the same time, we're out there packing out the walls to make sure they're straight for the tiler and you know get a straight junction to the seal so yeah i mean do you think you're going to take on your own projects you know with a, a brand new like build like a, a completely new build and not a renovation yeah <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately there's another one in the woodwork that's been in the woodwork for how long now Jess? i don't know maybe just after east melbourne was finished yeah maybe <laughs> six or seven years this one's been in the works and um yeah, it's a little bit. It's a little bit shameful how long we've been sitting on it. But my partner Damien and I again, we bought a little block of land this time in West Melbourne. So you know, moving very far across the city there, and um, being absolute suckers for punishment. 
this block of land is 73 square metres, so pretty small, and um, it's only about five metres wide, which is even further reduced by setbacks required off a whole lot of services. So we really set ourselves a challenge with that one. Everyone says, oh, well, you'll just go up, but the block is actually the subdivided backyard of an old terrace house, which is to the north of a whole lot of very tiny backyards. So going up is also something that's highly restricted. We do have a planning permit, I'm happy to say, which if I don't action quite soon, I could be in a bit of strife. But um, we've managed to squeeze on about 110 square metres of house um, to the block. And, um, you know, it, it has it's it's really been a huge challenge. I think it's been delayed for a lot of the reasons that I think most architects' own homes are delayed, which is like, it goes to the bottom of the pile whenever you're busy. I found it, I think Tara, you know, referred to this before, but I find it a lot more challenging to make decisions for myself than I do when I'm working with a client and you have that sort of other opinion in there, in the mix. And I think primarily that sense of trying to design your sort of defining work that represents everything that you're about or trying to get all your good ideas into one project. And so when we bought the block of land, I really thought that this project was that project for me. I think now that I've worked on it for so long and um, my partner's so frustrated with me, (laughs) some of that is going by the wayside. And also once you've established your own firm and you get the opportunity to work on a whole lot of super interesting projects, the the pressure's off a little bit. So hopefully that'll mean, um, you know, things get rolling a bit sooner, but but also the longer projects take, the more the more your brief changes, especially over, you know, six yeah. years. Yeah. When we mm. first bought the block of land, we were living in a North Melbourne share house with five of us in there and, you know, paying dirt cheap rent. And all we thought about was how can we build the most awesome party house? And now we're more like, oh, where would a baby sleep when you're living over three levels? <laughs> you know, would you hear them cry? So stuff changes a lot. But mm. Aside from all those things, it's also been delayed because it's just such a such a challenging site with services and council and, you know, just because of the size of it. Well, when you were trying to get the, the planning permit, did you meet with someone from council to, to try to have a pre-app or to bring them on site? Yeah. So we, we normally always try to have pre-apps for our projects and um, they're a little harder to get these days, to be honest. But oh, absolutely. Yeah, we did, a, we did a pre-app for this project and when we turned up to the City of Melbourne, office the planner who was assigned to us came out with this huge manila folder it was probably like three inches thick and it was full of the never realized dreams of I think four or five clients (laughs) that had owned the block of land prior to us so of course that was a real bit of a shock to the system we thought oh god are we going to come across some sort of services service issue or I don't know other planning issue in a few months that is just going to end this but we we haven't (laughs) but once we met with the planner and they had a few preliminary issues actually one preliminary preliminary issue which was pretty significant which was I'm sure like most people will know parking and the ability to fit a car on site has a fairly critical impact on a lot of projects and Damien and I had decided we'd really like to be able to park a car on the site somewhere because land in the city of Melbourne, which was subdivided after 1991, doesn't get on-street permits. So it was really like if we couldn't fit a car somewhere, we couldn't have a car. And we had just created this area, a sort of undercroft at the front of the site, which we called, um, I don't know, covered garden or something. <laughs> and we anticipated that we could just use the space to pull a car in. But, you know, the planner wasn't an idiot and clocked onto that pretty 
early on. And the issue is because our block of land is right at the end of the laneway, you can pull in, but you can only get out by reversing. There's nowhere to pull in the opposite direction and then drive forward. So council basically said to us, look, the laneway is a public road. It's, it's got a name. It's, it's, it's a public thoroughfare. You're not allowed to reverse a car up a public road as your only means to <laughs> drive along it, which is really what we were proposing. So the impact of that feedback was pretty huge for the project when you're working on such a small site something like that just has the most enormous flow-on effects. So once we had to figure out a different response to parking, the stairs couldn't go where they were anymore. They had to be reconfigured, which meant, you know, the hallways were too small, which meant we needed to extend this way or that way, which increased overshadowing. It's just like an ongoing roll-on effect of, of problems. So we had to do a pretty significant redesign and we actually ended up incorporating a turntable to turn the car around, which I'm, I mean, look, we haven't paid for this yet, so we'll see what happens, but I'm quite ashamed of it for some reason. <laughs> My partner thinks it's going to be really fun. Fun for parties. Fun for parties, yeah. <laughs> but And maybe for the car, I don't know. So we did that redesign and once we resubmitted to council, it was actually surprisingly um, easy and fast. We didn't get any objections. And of course, then as an architect, you start second guessing and thinking, should I have pushed a bit harder? Should I have gone for something else? But I don't know. I think that story is like a pretty good reflection of how challenging you know, all the aspects of that kind of project have been when just once one, well, it was a big change, but one change can impact the entire plan. <laughs> the entire plan. And like, you know, just how every space fundamentally worked. And I think, you know, with any small project, small space circulation is probably where the circulation sits and how it works sort of defines how all the other spaces, where they can sit and how they, and how, you know, they'll relate to one another and how you get to them. And, of course, in a three-storey building, which this will be, That's the, the vertical case. circulation yeah. is driving everything else. And so by moving that, it really had to, we had to rethink how all the spaces worked. It wasn't just a little nip and tuck here and there. Yeah. And, I mean, after, after such a long time of working on this house, have you also found, like, what you bought that, that, low, that site for and what you were planning the house to be has also changed a little bit because is it going to be the, the party turntable house or is it going to be the sort of forever home with lots of comfy seating for long afternoons drinking tea? <laughs> <laughs> we're not that old yet. Um, I think it's, I don't know, we're not sure. I think the thing is when we bought it, it seemed like such a big investment, although to be honest, the land was extremely cheap. Once again, if you buy the tiniest thing that scares the shit out of everyone else, you can often get a bargain. But it felt like that project was going to define everything about our life. We were going to live there forever. We saw ourselves living in West Melbourne or North Melbourne forever. We loved it. We had the whole concept set up. But I think over this period of time, it's it's. I'm really excited to live there. I, I think it'll be awesome. But I think you know, as you grow up and you have a little bit more money, although I wouldn't say you have access to much money when you start your own business, as you would know. Um, but, you know, you have other options and I think it's going to be nice to live there and then see how we feel about it. But, you know, we have owned it for a long time, so the value of land has increased a lot. But, I mean, as has construction. the cost of construction mm. has increased mm. so phenomenally in that period of time that I think the sort of benefit of the project probably remains quite, quite similar mm. overall. And I think because you were sort of maximising the site as much as possible, I don't think there's any room for anything else unless you start deleting spaces. No, there's nothing else. I mean, 
Tara, Damien, even my staff are just like, it's done, just draw it and get it done. <laughs> so stop thinking about it. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night with some idea that I think, oh, if I can figure the stairs this way, like maybe it would change everything. And then I go into my old CAD file and I realized I already tried that out four years ago and it didn't work. <laughs> well, I, I guess Jesse's the worst <laughs> client. <laughs> But the best architect, so you know. <laughs> oh, after <laughs> you, <laughs> well, I guess you know, Tara, you've been able to watch and sort of experience this vicariously through what Jesse's been going through. But this is still a question for both of you. You know, mm. after what you've gone through, Jesse, do you think if you were to do another house for yourself, you'd want to do you know a bigger, wide open site <laughs> that's not sort of in a suburban with so many controls? We both love living in the inner city, so can't foresee. I can't see that happening in the future. Arisa and I have since moved into a terrace in Collingwood, which we purchased together during the pandemic, and it is on 110 square metres, and the house is about 85 square metres, and is in pretty shabby shape. Although we've done a very tiny renovation to it, we plans to do a proper renovation to it in the future. But I don't. I don't think I can start working on it until Jesse's, you know, Porter slab at Miller Street. <laughs> Miller Place. Miller Place, sorry. We've had so, a Miller Street project and a Miller Place, so we're all, ah, we're all right. Miller out. So what do you oh, think? No, you two, so the answer like, is no. I think. <laughs> well, so why do you two think that you like these tricky projects so much? I mean, I personally think it's always easier to start with constraints to respond to so maybe I just like the easy part well easy in one way hard in another but I think socially as well we have a responsibility to to build smaller and to try and showcase how you can build smaller so that we can increase density and kind of have maybe some sort of impact on housing affordability as architects so I think that's that's certainly one of the drivers for me I think the other thing is that we really really love the character of Melbourne suburbs. We're very familiar with it and, you know, we've grown up with it and we um, really value, I suppose, the existing conditions of the city. <laughs> I think, you know, a lots of part, uh, I think a lot of the parts, particularly of the CBD that we really used to love, the sort of, uh, I don't know, old warehouse buildings that could be converted into, I don't know, galleries or bars or pop-up cafes and all those kind of things. It, it was that sort of ingrained long-term character of spaces that could be sort of layered and evolve with different people's ideas that gives Melbourne so much of its character and of course the heritage component of that and you know we see more and more of that disappearing and I think you know a lot of the development of those types of sites is really um, legitimate because we do need to create a lot more housing but where you get these funny little projects like at the Miller Place project in particular where you're creating an entire new dwelling without bowling anything over, we really gravitate to those kind of projects. We have another project in Kensington, which is which we completed, I suppose, just when I got back from America. So the end of 2018 maybe or yeah. early 2019. And that was a new house, a bit like Miller Place, on the back of a larger block in Kensington. So the front of the block had an unusually a, large block for Kensington. Yeah, but still that's small true. in the scheme of things. Yeah, an unusually large block for Kensington. That's true. It had a double front of Victorian on it, so yeah. it's already double the width of quite a lot of them. But yeah. it had a double front of Victorian on the front, which 
our clients had already done a double story extension to probably in the nineties for their fair, you know, when they had all the kids at home and they really wanted to stay in Kensington. Um, they run a business locally and, you know, they've known all their neighbors for decades, but the house was enormous. And obviously like most people, a lot of value is tied up in the home you've lived in for many, many years. So they asked us if we could look at a design where we were able to fit an entirely new house on the back of the block and not just as a sort of granny flat or secondary dwelling, but to get a subdivision through and um, have that entirely separate to the front. So I think it's those kind of challenging projects when someone comes to us with the opportunity, we we really jump at it and working on the Millerplace project, although it was nowhere near completion and still isn't, I'd already been working on it for several years at the time. So, so much of the knowledge I had from that applied directly to this project. So all the kind of you know, dramas that you foresee popping up on a project around services or around planning issues, particularly around uh, parking, because this was also at the end of a laneway, <laughs> lots of similarities we were able to address really early on in the project. And I suppose also dealing with City of Melbourne previously on a similar type of project was really fantastic because you understand what they're open to. And I mean, really, you know, City of Melbourne are really open-minded and forward thinking in terms of these kind of projects I think you would struggle to get them through in a lot of other in a, in a lot of other councils so I think it was really great to have that experience and then apply it to another project and you know it's just awesome you sort of none of the na- oh, I, I think there was maybe one minor objection to that I don't was think there maybe, was any objection oh, maybe there was none again and when you're able to design something that's essentially doubling the density of an existing block without pulling any houses down without upsetting any neighbors yeah i mean it's the it's the dream yeah well i mean you've worked on some incredible projects you know for yourselves and it seems like there's more coming down the pike um, to be constructed um so it's gonna be really exciting to see what you do next what do you think uh for any architects who are thinking about taking on their own micro development for themselves what do you think they should think about before they take it on? And, you know, what do you think is the best thing that you can get out of it? I think knowing it'll take way longer than you anticipate is fairly key and it'll and cost way more than you think it will. <laughs> you probably go to become very familiar with the staff at Bunnings. <laughs> you know, spend a couple of hundred dollars every few weeks on things you didn't even know existed. I would say also make sure your partner is, or if you're doing it with someone else, if you have a partner, make sure they're either on board or at least able to be forcefully coerced into <laughs> being on board. It's just, it's really hard. It's, it's really hard work. But I think that the biggest benefit of it is that you have this opportunity for experimentation. And I think, you know, lots of architects use their own projects or their own homes as a sort of lab to try out different, just to try out different things. And when to do, to do a project on your own and be the kind of person that has the final responsibility for making all the decisions. And not only that, but that you have to live with those decisions. It's a pretty important learning experience, I think. Yeah. And the inverse of it is when you're working for another client, I feel like, well, when you're working for a client that isn't yourself, I feel like you're conscious of the fact that they're going to have to they'll have to wear the burden of a big failure Mm. when it's only going to be you. (laughs) Maybe you sometimes feel more liberated to try something out because you'll just have to suck it up. Mm. So 
if you get it wrong. Yeah. If you get it wrong. But, of course, you get the reward if you get it right. But we think yeah. a lot about our responsibilities to our clients and I think sometimes that, you know, with certain clients with certain projects, there are great risks to be taken and I think there's huge reward in them. But I think with other projects, especially when you realise, you know, you're working with people's life savings and you're taking them on a journey, like one of the sort of biggest financial journeys probably they'll go through, I think we take that responsibility very seriously. And That's so right. sometimes you might you might possibly limit the kind of things you might suggest or be able to achieve. Whereas when you're doing it for yourself, you might be doing it on a micro scale, but you can mm. you can test whatever you want as long as you're up for dealing with it down the track. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best thing. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tara and Jesse, for, for joining me today. It's been so good to hear about you know, all of the projects that you've done both you know, for yourselves but then also in your practice. And, yeah, we can't wait to see what comes next. So thank you so much. And, thank yeah, we you. look forward to seeing, seeing more of your work in the future. Thanks. Thanks. It's awesome. See ya. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guests in this episode, Jesse and Tara from Fowler & Ward. We're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see the future projects you design for your clients and also for yourselves down the road. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Australian production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Cassie Ward, Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.